11. Uh, several weeks ago, you know, we were headed to East Africa. I had to go back over to Kenya to preach some meetings, and that is exactly what happened. Of course, you know the challenges we have been dealing with as we have been uh, in and out of Kenya. There's been a little bit of persecution, a few difficulties, and and things like that. Last fall, when my wife and I went to Kenya, the first night we were there, we told you that the pastor hosting us, he and seven other members in his church were assassinated. That was when we went to to minister. So this time, going back a couple of weeks ago, we were quite interested to see how some of this was going to work out. The day we were flying out, we were driving to the airport, and then I got a text there was a storm in Chicago. All flights were canceled. So I actually had to, we stayed in Lincoln that night and I had to leave the following day. I got there Thursday night and missed a very important luncheon with over 100 bishops that we had paid for and scheduled. However, that Friday morning, I still was able in the late morning to speak to more than 40 bishops and pastors. And then afterwards, we gave them an hour of answers, questions and answers regarding reaching Muslims, because there's a, a large contingency coming into that area where they are at. And of course, we've done a lot in the years past to evangelize in the Middle East. So we had a good time speaking with them about that. They put a big tent up in the middle of Nyeri. Nyeri is the village that is the capital of the Kikuyu tribe. So we were there for four days. I preached twice a day, three times on Sunday, and God gave us a wonderful harvest there. Under that tent, it was like, it was like reading the book of Acts all over again, the way God moved and ministered. So they had asked me to minister on the bride of Christ, the coming of the Lord, and then Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost. And, and, and we did. We accommodated them. We ministered that one night on the day of Pentecost, I'm sure 30, Kids and adults came forward for prayer, and it was just like Acts chapter 2, folks. God poured out his Holy Spirit under that tent, and we were, we were quite pleased. We had a, I'm trying to think, we had a, um, had a number of pastors that were given testimonies by the end of the meeting. Of course, this time of the year, for the folks in East Africa, this is their winter. Now, winter for them it's 72 degrees. Wow. Pastor was happy. I, I, I got there, folks. I'm telling you, that, that last service on Sunday afternoon, I, I preached and ministered through a translator, uh, putting it in Swahili. But I, I preached so hard, my suit was stuck to me. I mean, sweat running down me. And they had two little African guys running behind me with towels, patting my forehead to make sure sweat didn't run down. It was crazy. But but the chairman of the ministerial fellowship, because it was forty about 40 of them that were there that final service, and it, it was packed. I mean, standing room only, no place to, to sit anymore, and they were outside the tent surrounding the place. But he got up and he testified that he, he couldn't remember a meeting like that, that taking place there, and they wanted me to come back again. They wanted to do something else. But when he got up, of course, it's wintertime over there. He had this big, huge winter coat on, buttoned up to his neck, and he had them big Russian earmuffs on, and he went to the, the, the platform and was just shaking and shivering. And here, I'm sweating and everything. It's 90, 72 degrees. I thought, well, this is amazing. How can this, how can this happen? But it was, it, was a, it was a wonderful time. But I do want to mention this. The persecution that we dealt with when I took Tiffany last year when that host pastor was assassinated, the, the things haven't changed. That pastor that hosted me this time, Bishop Karani, uh, two weeks before I got there, I'd sent some money over there for advertising. And so they wanted to uh, put up these big, huge billboards and posters and hang them across the street and had a picture of me, Bishop Karani, and then this other bishop on there. Well, two weeks before I got there, the pastor was sitting in the restaurant with two, or excuse me, three of his ministers, and two people walked up to the table in the restaurant and said, are you planning on holding that meeting in the fairgrounds? And he said, yes. He said, I just want you to know if you are, there will be some people who will 
come to your house tomorrow night and put a bullet between your eyes. That's what they told the bishop in public in a restaurant with his preachers there. Now, the bishop didn't tell me this to the day he was driving me to the airport, but he, he told me that. So I said, well, well, what did you say? He said, well, I told them because they said, we don't want, you shouldn't be home with your family because if your family is there, they're going to be harmed. And Bishop said he told them, he said, look, there have been attacks on my life before. And even if I took my family and ran, where would we run to and how long would we need to be on the run? He said, I, we're not going anywhere. And these two people were talking rough to him in front of all of these folks. But the next night, he said, 2 a.m., he heard a sound out there. He went, got out of the bed, had his wife and stuff with him, got out of the bed. And sure enough, there was a masked man out there, just took the window pane off the outside. Another man had a long stick with a metal hook at the end of it. They just stuck it in and unlatched the first lock on that door and was grabbing for the second lock. And he grabbed a machete and kind of ran it along the bottom of the door. And he said to them people, come on in, I'm waiting on you. And they took off and ran. Now, now that's an interesting story, if for no other reason than this. Uh, Kenyan people are not aggressive. They're fairly passive people, non-confrontational, kind of like people from Ghana. The Ghanaians are the same way. And I told him, because in the past, his method of handling uh, thieves was if they broke in the house and he was home with his wife and his kids or his grandkids, he just brought them all into one room <clears throat> and let them rob and loot and then they could take as much as they wanted. And then whenever they were gone, then they would come out. And I said, oh, no. I said, no, that's, that's not the American way. <laughs> I said, no, that's, that's not the American way. I said, I know you guys are not allowed to have weapons in your home, but get a bat, get a machete, get a knife, get something. But don't ever make it easy for somebody to come into your home and just take everything you have. Because on several occasions, Tiffany and I have been over there, and their television had just been stolen or was stolen right after we left when they replaced it. Like as I said, they were non-confrontational, but you can see the method has changed when he took that machete and kind of went along the bottom. Well, you good folks out here in Nebraska, you know, that probably wouldn't happen to you anyhow, because out here most of you have enough in your house to hold off a small army. <laughs> so, yes. Well, last week we went to Dallas, Texas. We had a conference down there. You know that I'm the International Missions Director for World Ministry Fellowship, so we had to go down and give a report on what our missionaries are doing around the world. So I had our Director of Southeast Asia, our Director of Russia and Europe, Central America, and then uh, in the Middle East, and I just put them all at some tables, and we just talked about what God was doing around the world because I wanted all of those preachers, hundreds of ministers, I wanted them to know that if it, even if it looks like God's not doing anything in your neck of the woods, God's doing a lot of things all around the world. And that's important. So there are a lot of ministers who are discouraged because they say the Lord's not moving where they minister. However, I can tell you, God is at work. He's doing great and, and mighty things. Uh, one person told me they just got back from China and said that they were ministering in a factory and said over there in that underground church, you're not allowed to just hold a big mass meeting. So they went to a factory, and with 566 people there, this individual preached John 3.16 to each person, 566 people. Started on uh, the beginning of the uh, manufacturing line, going all the way to the end. And I asked him, I said, how long did that take you? He said, 14 hours. Imagine that, 14 hours telling the same sermon, same story, 566 people, but he told me 70 people came to Christ. He said there was one lady that was in there weeping and crying. She was in her late 60s or 70s. He to she told him when she was a little girl, she had had a dream or a vision that some African missionary was going to be coming over there to tell them about Jesus. The woman waited six decades. and She would not even let the man's hand go. She just kept weeping and crying, listening that so don't tell me God won't move heaven and earth for somebody that needs to know the truth amen amen so we we thank you for your prayers and and it's, it's wonderful I don't have any trips coming up for a few months so I get to just get right into uh, the word of God with you so I can tell you in, in the weeks to come we're going to move into Galatians we're going to kind of tackle that and go verse by verse through that and, and just let that speak to us 
I, I believe it'll be a text that's important. However, tonight I want to do something different. Luke chapter 11. This will be part two to something I ministered on a couple of Sundays ago, uh, a teaching entitled The Kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? And, and we worked on several questions. We, we worked on, number one, what is the definition of the kingdom of God? And we told you that it is a group of people who have surrendered their hearts to the rule and dominion of God. And they've entered into a covenant with the Lord so that Christ has become their master and their teacher. Then we talked about, with regard to the kingdom of God, how is it spread? How is it announced? Well, it's proclaimed. It's preached. We dealt with the question, why does the Lord teach concerning the kingdom of God in parables? We told you that the Lord said there are certain mysteries that are for people who are outside the kingdom. He reveals these truths to people that belong to him. We worked on how do we enter the kingdom of God. We looked at Nicodemus and showed you that the Bible makes it very plain that except a man is born again, they can't see or enter the kingdom of God. So we told you that God has to give a man or woman a new set of faculties to be able to recognize the church or the kingdom of God because it's a spiritual entity. Scripture says it doesn't come by the outward manifestation, but it's in you. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And the reason why you have such a different viewpoint from sinners is because of this main point of being born again and in the kingdom of God. So when you're in the kingdom of God, your perspective, your outlook is different from someone who is not connected to God and doesn't read the Bible. This is why you, you'll talk to somebody and they'll say this, well, I don't see it that way. Well, the reason they don't see it that way is because they're not born again. They have not had their minds washed with the word of God or brought into conformity to God's thinking. And until a man or woman changes their mind, they cannot think the thoughts of God. And if you can't think the thoughts of God, then you hinder your Christian life. You limit your ability to believe God, to trust God. So this evening, Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse number 14, I'm going in the opposite direction. We dealt with the kingdom of God. Now I'm going to talk to you about kingdom of devils. Because a lot of people in this world don't believe the devil is real. You'll believe he's real by the time we're done tonight. Luke 11, verse 14, he was casting out a devil and it was dumb. It came to pass when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake and the people wondered. But some of them said he casts out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. Others tempting him sought of him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto him, every kingdom is divided against itself. It is brought to, des- to desolation and a house divided against a house Falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because all of you say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come unto you. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor, wherein he trusted and divided his spoils. He that is not with me is against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth. When the unclean spirit is gone out of man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then he goeth and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. They enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse <coughs> Excuse me, than the first. John, can you give me a cup of water? Okay, so let's have, a, let's have a word of prayer. Again, Lord, it is a privilege to be able to look into the scriptures. We know that these, these verses speak to all of our hearts, and they provide us the wisdom that we need to live here on this planet. So God, give us instruction and understanding As we look into these texts tonight, these things we pray for in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen, amen. Okay, so if, if, if we believe in God, it goes without saying, of course, that there, there is an adversary. Thank you. And the devil 
is the adversary of God. So if God's doing everything he can to create a holy people, the devil's doing everything he can to steal, to kill, and to destroy, to use the Bible language. The children of Israel had an understanding of the devil, and they had a basic belief system, but it wasn't until Jesus came that this stuff really became a a focal point, because nowhere in the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi do you ever have anybody casting out devils. You have the story of Job, where Satan is involved with the discussion with the Lord in the first couple of chapters, and even in Kings and Chronicles, you have the story where the Lord says, who will be a, a lying spirit in the mouths of these prophets? And then the evil spirit says, I will go and I will be the one. But you do not have stories of people full of the devil being delivered from demon power. But according to verse 14, our Savior was casting out a devil and it was dumb. That, it was, that is to say, it... it It created in the human vessel the inability to speak. Now that tells us that in the New Testament, if we talk about evil spirits, they have a tendency to possess certain character traits, qualities. So in Luke, he talks about a spirit of infirmity. So a lady was sick all the time. Something Something going on in her. In another occasion, he speaks of an unclean spirit. Let's not forget that that kind of a spirit, according to Luke 9, had a young boy doing some terrible things, foaming at the mouth, hurting himself, and he needed to be set free, and the disciples were unable, unable to do that. So if, if we know that, 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 that there are lying spirits, jealous spirits, and so on and so forth, then behind the actions of some people, very often there are things that are bad. The same way you run into a Christian and you know that Christian is godly, you know that the motivating factor in their life is the Lord. There are evil people in this world and the motivating factor in their life is not good. I'll give you an example. Over there in that world where we just come from to go and minister the, the word of the Lord, they abduct young girls sometimes, virgin girls, in order to sacrifice them to evil spirits. Don't tell me that's motivated by God. That's motivated by something entirely, entirely evil and something unknown to most of us in this room. A number of years ago in this country right here, I think it was over in Michigan, there was a Muslim couple that wanted to put together a a TV station to demonstrate the more peaceful side of the religion of Islam. They wanted to put programming on television that people could see. But the wife decided she was unhappy with the husband and she wanted to divorce him. And so rather than just let her get a divorce, he killed her and cut her body up in small pieces. That's right here in America. You got to understand there is something behind that. There's a spirit that drives that kind of a, of an activity. And when we look into the scripture, then, then God helps gives us, he helps to give us some understanding about these things. Well, that's not to say every time something bad happens is demonic. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that there's something driving a particular ideology and sometimes driving people. I had a, another lesson that I was going to teach tonight, but I didn't, didn't deal with it. But in that, I'm talking about Leviticus 18. In Leviticus 18, it talks about how God says that incest, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, and the, the murder of kids is wrong. That's Leviticus 18. So I was going to get into that. But there's this story in there that I was going to share with you about a couple in Germany a brother and sister who fell in love and have four children, a brother and sister. And they asked for the German, uh, the German government to overturn the incest laws and legitimize it because in their words, they said it's not right for their kids to have to go to school and their parents are stigmatized by this particular crime. So the German ethics 
committee decided, well, maybe we should look into this and we should decriminalize this. And we're talking about same mother, same father, brother and sister. I don't know what you think about that, but I'm telling you right now, the Bible condemns that. The Bible says that's wrong. And, And for people to begin to think that we can somehow normalize that kind of behavior, there's something behind that thinking is what I'm getting at. You see something behind that. So let's come back to Luke 11. Once Jesus dealt with the spiritual issue, immediately the child or the individual spoke. Now the Jewish people, verses 15 through 18, they began to say he's doing this by Beelzebub. Now this was an ancient Jewish belief that uh, this individual Beelzebub excuse me, was in charge of demons as if there was some kind of hierarchy or something like that. And they said, okay, well, if Jesus is doing these things and healing people and helping people and all of this stuff, he must be evil. That's what they were saying. He must be evil. And he wanted them to know that that's impossible. So verse 17, he perceived their thoughts and he said, a kingdom that's divided against itself cannot stand. He's saying, I cannot be full of the devil and then cast the devil out. He says, the only way I can make him go is if I'm of God. Light can cast out darkness just as fast as you flip the light switch on. But the devil is not going to cast out the devil because they're in agreement with one another. That's that's the whole point of what he's saying. Well, in identifying Satan, Jesus is speaking of the reality of the adversary. If Satan is divided against himself. So God is omniscient. He's, uh, he's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. But when we think of the devil, he is not any of those things. He is a creation. He is fallen. And in one of the preceding chapters in Luke, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven as quick as a flash of lightning. The people have this idea that the devil is strong. And, and this is why we have so many people with phobias and fears today. <clears throat> you run into people and they'll say things like this. Well, when you, when you get to so-and-so's house on such-and-such street, that house is haunted, so walk past that one fast. Yeah. And, and I've had people... People say to me, I would never go to so-and-so's house and spend the, spend the night in their house because they got one room in there and there just seems to be some bad, I get eerie feelings when I go in there. I see, I'm not like that. The Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of love, power, and a sound mind. So if I'm in somebody's house and they say, don't go in there, there are evil spirits in there, I kick the door open. Why be afraid? God has not given us a reason to be afraid because we as Christians have power over the adversary. So why let your life be bound by superstition? Scripture says that in Jesus' name, you have power and you can, you can do things. So you can, you can look at situations and just act as though you have no ability to change it or influence it. And if you do that, then you might as well just wave the white flag and surrender and give up. Or you can challenge it. Because I'm telling you, there are people in this world that you come in contact with on a day-to-day basis. There are some people so filled with strife and discord and anger that they live to create problems. And those people, you can deal with them simply by just talking under your breath. Devil, you're a liar. I bind you in Jesus' name. Let that person go. Or you can just keep letting people do whatever they want to do in, uh, in your own life. I know in, in your home, nothing can go on in your home unless you permit it. Now, you, you hear sometimes you'll hear teenagers or, or kids say to their parents, <clears throat> after the parents were going through the room or something like that, they'll say, you don't have a right to be in here. This is my space. These are my drawers. This is my desk. Well, my parents weren't like that. My my mother and father made it very plain to me. I, I didn't own anything in that house. I didn't even own the britches I was wearing. And they would go in any drawer they wanted to go in at any time. And if I didn't like it, 
I, I could just leave. And just to give you an idea how my mother put me in my place one time, when I was little and my mom and pops divorced, then I got angry one time with my mom, and, and I said to her when I, when I came home, I said, I said, I'll go stay with Dad. You can't tell me anything around here. And, and then I went down the, down the street and was w- with some friends, and, and as soon as I got home, I noticed that there were suitcases by that door. Well, I'm telling you, before I even got out the driveway, my mother was in my room. She was tossing stuff and putting it in that suitcase and just shut it. And when I got back home, she said, your dad will be here to get you. See? Well, I understood real quick that in that house, the only powerful of powerful figure and authoritative person was her, not me. And it's the same way with the adversary. Jesus never plays around with the devil. He never lets the devil believe he has any power at all. Jesus makes sure the adversary knows that he must be submissive to him. And we cannot do otherwise. Verse 20. He says, if I with the finger of God cast out devils, know the kingdom of God has come upon you. So there's a conflict. When the kingdom of God comes in contact with with the powers of darkness, very often there is a manifestation. I've seen this all over the earth in preaching the gospel. You're up ministering and then here's somebody falls out on the ground in an open field and goes to slithering like a snake or something like that. Or somebody gets angry and goes to foaming at the mouth and cussing at you and spewing out foul language. You can't be up in front of a whole lot of people and then turn and run off the platform and go hide behind a tree. You gotta stand there in the name of Jesus Christ, believe that you can set a captive free. And this is what, this is what Jesus is teaching. So verse 21 through 22, he talks about the strong man, and then he talks about the stronger man. See, a strong man who's armed, he keeps his palace and his goods are in peace. I gave you the illustration of my my bishop friend who had the intruder that was coming into the home and how he defended his home. He was armed. The person who is not armed is incapable of fighting the good fight. So the scripture says for us as Christians that we should put on the armor. Helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness. The Bible speaks about us being girded with truth having our feet shod with the gospel of peace, having a shield of faith, and the Bible being our sword of the spirit. So spiritually, we have to be willing to fight. You have to resist the adversary. When you see the devil get involved in your marriage and your marriage is getting worse and worse, you don't just let it get worse and worse. You take a stand. You fight against the adversary. You go against the adversary. If I was working on a, a regular job and, and then uh, people on the job were creating all kind of hostility for me and problems and stuff like that, I could tell you exactly what I'd be doing. I'd be there before they got there every day. I'd be anointing that place with all and I'd be proclaiming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ saying, Lord, there's going to be peace in this place. You say, well, why go through all of that? Why not go through all of that? Everything else is failing. Why not try trusting God? See, do that. I've got a friend over in uh, Red Cloud at the, the other church. His family comes out to, to the church. So one day we were, I think we were at a graduation or something. So I know he's got all kinds of weaponry and all this stuff. And I just casually asked him, I said, well, <clears throat> how, how much stuff do you have in that house of yours? You know, Somebody was breaking in. And here's what he said to me. He said, he said, if I wake up in the middle of the night and there's somebody in that house, he said, I've got enough stuff in my bedroom to get me to the kitchen. <laughs> and he said, if I, if I make it to the kitchen, he said, if I make it to the kitchen, he said, I can make it down the stairs into the basement where everything is at. And he said, if I make it to the basement, he said, God helps anybody when I come up those stairs. That's what he told me. That's what he told me. So, he, so here's the point. In verse 21, when a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. So as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, as a friend, if you're going to preserve relationships and preserve your home, then you've got to keep an eye out for when the adversary is coming in to steal, kill, and destroy. And as soon as you put your eyes on him and recognize that he's getting busy, then you start resisting him with your faith. I mean, it's not... 
It's not this. It's faith. And, and Father, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to believe you. And you're going to help me, God. That's how you talk. You don't be weak about it. You be strong about it. That's how you talk. You, you don't lay there and let the devil invade your home and take authority over all of the relationships and people in your house. There are many homes like that now. There are people that drive around town here and other towns. They don't even go home immediately after work because they've had a bad day at work. They don't want to go home because once they go home, they've got to deal with a spouse they don't like. So they're going to be fighting there. They don't have to deal with kids they can't manage, so they're unhappy with that. So they just ride around the block looking for a place to go until they finally make up in their mind, okay, let's go do this. See? Or head for the bar. You drink enough, put yourself in a stupor. It doesn't matter what everybody's saying. You won't remember tomorrow morning anyhow. That's what I'm saying. That's not the way to fight. If if you're going to fight, be the kind of a strong person that resists the adversary so that your goods remain in peace. The Bible says, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Bring your thoughts under the dominion of scripture. Meditate on the word of God. And rather than giving people a two cents of your mind or a piece of your mind when you're ready to go off, think about scripture. Give them the word of God. And, and this is how peace Peace abides and remains with us. Verse 22, so when a stronger comes, stronger with E-R, that's comparative. When a stronger than the strong man comes, he overcomes him. And you have to do that. So when you, when you begin to identify that somebody's been taken captive by the adversary, somebody stronger has got to deliver them. That's why most people who are addicted to alcohol can't get free on their own. Most people that are addicted to drugs can't get free on their own. Most people who are having a number of other difficulties in life, they can't fix it on their own. They need somebody who's stronger to come in and minister to them and bring blessing to them. Now, let me give you an illustration with that. Stronger coming in contact with the strong. <clears throat> So one time I was on the West Coast holding meetings and the pastor picked me up at the hotel. We drove into the parking lot. As soon as we got into the parking lot, there's a girl came running across the church lawn and she was screaming at the top of her lung. And I knew it must have been a bad situation because when we pulled into the parking lot, the pastor put his head on the steering wheel and he sighed and he said, oh, I don't feel like dealing with her right now. That's what he said. So she comes to the door on my side because he wouldn't let his window down. He she comes to the door on my side and she's she's back and forth and she's doing all of this. And she's asking, are you the preacher? Are you the guest preacher? I said, I am. I am the preacher. She said, I need help. I need help. I need help. I'm wanting to kill myself. I need help. I need help. Well, I, I said, um, I'm going to preach this morning. I said, after I'm done preaching, I'll call you down and I'll pray for you. In front of the congregation. Well, I got up to minister that morning, Sunday morning service, and she couldn't be still. She was all over the sanctuary. She's just back and forth and here, there, and everywhere, couldn't sit still. And it was a distraction to all the people that were listening to me. Well, come to find out, she was on drugs, and she was a prostitute, and, and, and the man that was, was, was pimping her was, was, was somebody that was giving her a lot of these hallucinogens. She was just thinking she was crazy, you know, that, that kind of a thing. So after I was done preaching, I called her down. This was on Sunday morning in front of everybody, visitors and everybody. And, and I said to her, I said, I'm going to pray for you now. And, and um, I said, I want you right now to shout the name of Jesus as loud as you can, as loud as you can. She couldn't even get Jesus out of her mouth. That stronghold was in her in such a great way, wouldn't even let her say the name of Jesus. It was just almost like a whisper coming out. I reached my hand out to put my hand on the top of her head to pray for her. She fell down on the floor. The ladies in the church came and stood around her, and they started praying. So, of course, I'm over her. I'm saying, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. In the name of Jesus, come out of her. In the name of Jesus, come out of her. Sunday morning. In front of the visitors. 
And it was as quiet in that church then as it is right now as I'm telling the story. Believe me. And so she's, she's down there on that floor. And so I had to let her sit her up. They, they sat her up on her knees. I put my hands on her head again. I said, come out of her in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said, whatever her name was, I said, I'm going to count to three. And when I count to three, I want you to shout Jesus as loud as you can, because the Bible says, whosoever call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, rescued, delivered, set free. She shouted, Jesus, I'm telling you, it came out like the roar of the tribe or the lion of Judah. And she screamed the name of Jesus. Little lady fell back on her back and left that church totally changed, saved by the grace of God. A stronger came in contact with the strong, and the strong man had to leave. You see, that's all I'm getting at. The strong man had to leave. Verse 23, so Jesus, excuse me, verse 22, the latter part, he said, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divides his spoils. So the stronger person goes after him or her to see the person set free. Now, this is our this is our job, folks. The average preacher. Aside from the fact they probably don't even know 90 percent of what I'm talking to you about tonight, they wouldn't even be interested and this kind of a thing. But when, when we first came to Nebraska 20 years ago, Hastings used to have a prison. And they had, uh, on the same grounds, they had a, a mental institution for people who were having problems. And they would commit folks there. You couldn't get out. But I became a, a minister there. And I started going up, I think it was Monday nights, Tuesday nights, into the prison. But when I started going out there, the, the Chuck Colson ministry had been in that place, I don't know, 10 years or so. I don't know that they had five or six people coming out to their Bible study. I came out that first night. They said, what do you want to call your Bible study? I said, just Bible study with Pastor Darrell. They said, we'll make the announcement. I said, okay. They had me on, <clears throat> on the second floor in a little small room, little classroom, and and I'm standing in there. They, I heard the announcement come across the loudspeaker. So I'm just standing in there behind the desk, just waiting on some people to come in. And I'm watching all of these prisoners. And it's about 150, 160 or so prisoners. And they, people walking past the room, and they'd stop and look, keep on going. Turn around, they'd stop, look, keep going. And nobody would come in the room. Well, I thought to myself, okay. If nobody's going to come in here for the Bible study, I'll go out in the hallway. So I went out in the hallway, stood in front of the classroom door, and I said, look, since nobody's going to come into the classroom and listen to me preach, I'm going to stand out here in the hallway and preach, or you can come into the classroom. So one by one, people started coming to the classroom. I had, I don't know, 10 that listened to me that night. But it must have been life-changing for them, because the next Bible study that I, that I had, and within, I should say within a couple of weeks, they moved me to the basement. I remember that night down in the basement preaching to those prisoners, and we had probably 40 or 50 of them down at the end. Well, God was moving. And, and you got to understand, with these prisons, it's very territorial. A lot of gangs and stuff like that. Well, these people were getting delivered and getting set free. I'm preaching to folks that committed murder, rape, drug charges, abducting children, trafficking and all that kind of a thing. They end up putting me in the cafeteria and I had more than 120 people that I was preaching to on those nights. One night, it was just like Acts chapter 19. I had 12 of those prisoners lined up in front of me. I laid hands on every single one of them. The power of God hit them. And just like in Acts chapter 19, they began to prophesy and speak with other tongues. I was astonished looking at all of this. This is in jail. Well, the, the move of God was so sweet that those gang leaders were angry. They were getting upset. So they all decided one night they were going to come into the meeting and intimidate me. So these they had their colors on and all that kind of a thing. So I, I'm in my regular spot, the cafeteria, all the people facing me, the doors are in the back leading to the, the prison. These All of these folks came in, the chairs filled up, and then all these gang leaders stood along the back walls and somewhat on, along the side, and they're all standing there like this. And the whole point was they just wanted to intimidate me and make me afraid to see if I'd still preach the gospel to all these people there. Well, I didn't say this to them, but in my heart I was thinking, okay, if you folks are crazy enough 
to, to do that, then I'm crazy enough to preach on hell. That's what I did. I preached an entire message on hell, and I'm telling folks, I, I, my descriptions of hell that night, they were so vivid, okay? I mean, it, it was like I was shaking them over hell with a, with a dirty rotten stick or something. I mean, I, I was working on them, I'm telling you, because I, I was not going to be pushed, pushed down. Now, this was, you know, this was 17, 18 years ago. But when it's all over and I gave that call for salvation, I said, if you're here tonight and you want to give your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, I watched his old hands start doing this right here, gang members. See? Hands start going up. And, and the, point, the point is, Jesus has to be the one to do it. He's the only one that can save. But the gospel has to be preached and proclaimed. Some weeks later, some of those folks told me, they said, Brother Darrell, we appreciate your ministry and we're so happy that you come out here and talk to us, but you don't understand what it's like when you leave. When you leave. They were saying, when you get in your car and you drive back to, to Red Cloud or Hebron, wherever you, you're going, said, these, these men in here, they're raping us. This is prison, folks. This stuff that goes on every day and there are preachers that come in and out of there to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and we have to be in there to preach the gospel. And The only outlet they have for any kind of peace is when somebody comes in there with a gospel message and they can sit there for a few moments and hear the word of God. So we had to give them advice and stuff on, on sticking together, standing together and resisting that kind of a thing. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we're not to just give ourselves over to anybody just because they say they want us or they think they own us. We belong, we belong to God, period. Okay, so coming back to verse 23 then. Luke 11, Jesus said, He that's not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. So the Lord is saying, either you're on my side or you're not. You believe what I believe or you don't. You're working to further the kingdom of God or you're trying to you're trying to minimize this kingdom and make it smaller. So he gives an illustration of an unclean spirit in verse 24, leaving a person. That, that's what it looks like when deliverance comes to somebody. It's cast out and it has to leave. However, it looks for an opportunity to come back. So when a person becomes a Christian, the devil does not, he, he does not leave you alone just because you're saved now. He wants to attack you even more because he has been kicked out of what formerly was his home, which is your body, your heart, your mind. And the devil's doing everything he can to get back in. And that's why it says if the opportunity exists in verse 26, he comes and he enters in with seven spirits more wicked than himself. So that tells you right there that when you're dealing with the demonic, you have some spirits that are worse than others. Now think of the categories of sins in the Bible. We all know that lying is wrong. We know that adultery is wrong. But when, when God deals with certain kinds of sins, he describes them in a certain way. All sin is not treated the same way, but all sin separates us from God. That's what I want you to see. All sin separates us from God. You're not separated from God by feet and inches, but by sin. My sin, your sin. However, when the Lord says that he says homosexuality is wrong. He says it's an abomination. That's the adjective, abomination. When he describes bestiality, he says it is confusion. Comparative, confusion. The descriptions that God has for these kinds of activities is connected very often to what we have here in verse 26. He taketh to himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of the man is worse than first. In, in the epistle to Peter, he talks about how when a person starts walking with God, if that person isn't careful, they'll be like a dog that returns to his vomit. You've seen dogs do that. Expurgate and then devour again. Yeah. And this is what can happen when a person, when they begin to walk with God, but then all of a sudden put themselves in a position where bad things can begin to happen. It's, it's about the decisions we make, folks. 
the decisions we make. If you've been set free, the scripture says, be not entangled again with the affairs of this life. Don't put yourself in a position where you can be overcome by a strong one again. If you've been delivered from alcohol, then you ought not have wine coolers or nothing like that in your refrigerator at all. Doesn't matter if somebody in your family said, well, look, I, I just have to have something to drink every now and then. Well, you just had to have it in another house then because I can't have it. I can't have it around me. And, and once you realize that, then you cut yourself off from the, the possibility of that coming back on you at home. Now, the devil's going to do everything he can to catch you in other locations through a variety of temptations and tests and trials. But God gives us the ability to say no. He says there's no temptation that's come to you or to me, but such as is common or normal to every man. But with every temptation that comes to you, God gives you an exit, a way to escape. So you can say no. You don't have to yield and say yes in every temptation. Let me bring some of these thoughts to a conclusion here. So if we're, if we're dealing with spirits that debase themselves in a bad way and we know they need a vessel through which to manifest themselves, then now you have an idea of why sometimes in this world we have things that go on that are just bad. In Florida, many years ago, do you remember the story where the people saw the man pulled over along the side of the highway and he was holding a man, another man captive, and he was uh, eating his face? You remember that story? The man that was holding him, the man was on drugs. And he just snatched him out of the car and just beat him until the man was pretty much limp and just sitting there. The police got there and he was eating his face. And I believe, I believe if I'm not mistaken, they end up shooting that gentleman. See, that, that's bad bad but why does that happen that that individual was driven by something now somebody else would turn around and say well what he needs is um he, he just he just needs to sit down on dr phil's couch well dr phil has a lot of wisdom i assume but 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 i can assure you dr phil not ready for something like that he, he, he's not he's not ready for that <laughs> i guarantee you uh <clears throat> I'm trying to think. Brother Clint Denning, who's going home to be with the Lord now, he tells a story when my wife and I used to go to his minister's conventions, how in the early 50s he had just started preaching and holding revivals and stuff, and he was in a church, and they had advertised him on these little handbills that they passed out and said, come to the revival, God's going to do good things and going to bless a lot of people. And so he said about the second or third night there was a lady had to be in her 70s. She came up to him and said, Brother Clendenin, are you the one on this handbill? He said, that, that would be me. She said, well, God told me that, that he's going to use you to heal my daddy. Well, Brother Clendenin thought, well, okay, you're in your 70s, so daddy's got to be quite old if, uh, if you think God's going to use me. But what she meant was her husband. Her husband was in the insane asylum. And he didn't, Brother Clinton, since it was one of his first revivals, he didn't want to go. He kept putting it off. It was a two-week revival. So he kept pushing it off, pushing it off. She said, when will we go? He said, we'll go tomorrow. When will we go? As soon as I get some time. And he's making up every reason he could. But he gets to the end of the revival, and here we are, end of the road. And and she wants to know when they're going. And he said, we'll go tomorrow. So next day, pastor, Brother Clinton, and the wife make their way to a, a, a insane asylum. I think it was in Beaumont, Texas, or somewhere around in there. But when they got there, he, he described it in the early 50s, 1953, 54. He said when he got there and walked down the walls, he said they had human beings hanging from what looked like chicken wire all across the top of these hallways, folks just hanging up in there. And he said just people from time to time, he'd see you in these straitjackets. And he said as he was walking down the halls, he believed he had he had the impression in his heart from the Lord where the king said to him, all of these folks you see, they used to laugh and love like you do right now. See? So he said he got to the to the room and he he said the uh the attendant brought 
the lady's husband in and said when they brought him in, they, they, were, they were shuffling his feet and, and brought him in. He was in a straitjacket and said they had to bend his legs to set him down on the chair because he didn't even know to do that. He totally lost his mind. He said, the attendant said, when you're done, give me a call. Attendant walked out, hadn't been gone 15 seconds. Brother Clendenin just laid his hands on the man and said, Jesus, heal this man. He didn't feel any goosebumps. He didn't yell. He didn't scream. He just said, Jesus, heal this man. And he said, call for the attendant. Attendant came back in there and got him. And then the, the woman just went berserk, said, that's all you're going to do? They call you to, to, you know, you're supposed to be a person of faith and trust in God. We come here to an insane asylum and my husband, he's lost his mind. You don't know anything else? That's all you're going to do? Well, he just started preaching. He said, I didn't know anything else to do. He said, I didn't know how to shake him and spit on him. He said, he said, maybe I should have took my jacket off and threw it at him or something. Or maybe I should have kicked the chair over. He said, I didn't know any, anything. He just said, I'm just a young preacher starting off. He said the woman yelled at him all the way home. He was staying with the pastor in those days, he and his wife and his two kids. So the next morning, a woman called, and pastor answered the phone. That woman's yelling and screaming and shouting again, and they both didn't want to hear it. But this time she's, she's screaming and shouting a little differently now. She said to that pastor, she said, when I put my, 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 my husband in that insane asylum, they said there's nobody that can let him out but my son. And my son signed the paperwork for him to go in, and I was there, and it has to be the one to sign the paperwork to let him out. And they said they called this morning and said my husband rolled over in that bed, put his feet on that floor, and shouted, where is my wife? Think about that. Totally made whole. Only God can do these kinds of things and we've seen God do these all over the world thank God that his his word hasn't changed hasn't changed at all let's have a word of prayer father we're grateful this evening that we can look into the scriptures and we are happy that although we don't have the answers to a lot of things you do have the answers Lord, thanks for leading and guiding us the way that you do. Uh, we want our lives to count. We want them to matter. And we want to be the kind of Christians you've called us to be. So, Lord, uh, throughout this week, give us opportunities to witness to other people. And as we talk to them, we pray that their lives would be changed by your word, that they would be committed to you, not ashamed of your gospel. These things we do pray for in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen, Amen. amen.